Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 397. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Ah, oh, thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 397 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated mixer Brian Cook, located in Los Angeles. He's worked on projects by U2, One Republic, Jeff Goldblum, and Switchfoot. And he's my guest today, and we're going to talk all about his journey. You can check him out at Brian Cook Mixer. That's B-R-Y-A-N, cookmixer.com, and have a gander at what Brian's been up to. One of the things we're going to talk about is the fact that he likes to do non-music things to help him improve his music things. I think that's really cool. Anyways, Brian Cook coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about future-proofing your file management. Okay, long story short, you know, when I say future-proofing, it kind of sounds like hyperbole, but... Essentially, what I'm saying is, is I want to make sure that you are thinking about the future of the files that you're working with. In other words, you know, I know in the heat of the moment, we're thinking in the here and the now, and we're not always thinking clearly about the future. So fairly often in a Pro Tools session, I think many of you, including myself, are super guilty of forgetting to check the disk allocation. And files are getting spread all around to different drives. And then files are getting transferred to other drives, to other people, and they're moving around. And then when they finally land where they need to go and five, 10 years passes and somebody says, hey, could we pull that track up and remix it for whatever? I don't know. Maybe it's going to be in an episode of Stranger Things. Who knows? Anyways, you open the file and lo and behold, you're missing files because somebody didn't check the disk allocation. That's obviously one one case that we're talking about here. So check the disk allocation, but also come up with a folder hierarchy that makes sense to you. Doesn't have to be the perfect folder hierarchy, but it does have to make sense and it does have to contain all of the files. So, you know, once you've checked your disk allocation and you know everything is there, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is zip up a file to protect it. So one thing I love about working on on logic sessions is that the files just stay with the the DAW. There's a way to get in and take them out, but it's inherently set up so that if you send a logic file to somebody, the files are going to come with it. That's my experience. You may have a different set of experiences. But Pro Tools, you really got to think through this stuff. So make sure that you're doing that right. Also, your naming. Um, come up with, you know, as clinical as it can be, come up with a naming structure. Like for example, this, uh, podcast file that I'm working on right here that you're listening to has a naming structure. It resides in a folder, uh, that is, you know, WCA podcast or WCA episodes number, uh, let's see what do we got. It's in WCA episodes, 2022, right? So that's the era, obviously, I'm recording it. But the other part of that equation is naming the file properly. 
So every file is called, like for example, this one, WCA number 397 underscore Brian Cook underscore the date. But here's the trick with the date. The date is set up so it is the year, the month, and the day. Not the day, year, the day, month, year, right? And the beauty of that is when you put it in a list, everything falls into place. It looks very uniform. It's easy to find. And within that, I have, you know, the other parts of the episode, the promo images, you know, all the things that go with it. So whether you're doing it in a podcast or you're doing it for a song, a film, whatever, you know, my usual rant, whatever audio discipline you're in, make sure that you come up with a naming structure that makes sense for the next person, right? You want to future proof so that if, if you're not around, the next person can look at that file structure and completely understand it, know where all the files are. It's just, it, it, it works better for the clients in the long run. It protects them and it makes it just easier, not only for you in the future, but for others, which is really, you know, important. And I speak from experience because I'm going through a process of consolidating all the working class audio episodes, consolidating everything in one location in a proper way, labeling stuff. And along the way, I'm discovering that, you know, I've definitely made some mistakes, you know, in spite of my conversations with former WCA guest, Jessica Thompson, who, you know, is the queen of file structure and archiving and all that. And I've tried to, you know, take her lead on a lot of this, but you know, as I go through it, I discover, oh crap, you know, this episode, I don't think I have the multi-track for, you know, and which is not the end of the world, but, you know, for my OCD, you know, wanting everything to be just right and, you know, each episode to be intact, that kind of wears on me after a while. And I start to lay in bed thinking about where did I put that file? I've had a, a, a rant in the past about future you. I don't even know which episode that was at, but in the interest of ha keeping future you happy, make sure that all this file structure stuff, make sure you do it right so that future you does not get pissed off at past you and go, why did I do that? Keep it all organized. And if you have any thoughts and thoughts or questions, you can always email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com and uh, share your experiences with file structures and keeping all of this audio that we do intact. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Brian Cook here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you, Mr. Matt. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're talking to me from Los Angeles, is that right? That's right. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I'm an East Coast guy. Grew up in Philly. Went to Lower Marion High School in Mainline. Started off in Norristown, Plymouth Meeting, but we moved. Private school was a mess of money and uh, went to good public school instead. Public school got me started with instruments. I could make a sound with a reed instrument, so I played clarinet, but then I thought clarinet wasn't very cool. I guess I was like, oh, saxophone, that's cooler than clarinet. So I did saxophone and got really into jazz. Played pretty intensely for a while mm. and went to Berkeley doing jazz. At some point in college, I was in a band with some older students that were making audition tapes for like Oberlin and Eastman and you know, advanced music schools. So they got a studio. And at that point I realized studios were a thing that people did. I was just entranced and the whole thing captivated me. We hired someone to record us. And so that was clearly a job that someone did. Just what I heard in my headphones, I'll never forget it. It was just like painting, like the, the sonic colors. I just wanted to know more. And that started me on the audio side of my adventure. So the jazz and the audio were sort of parallel for a while. Yeah. I found out that Berkeley had a good studio program. So I was like, oh, but I know they clearly have a great music program as well, kind of where they started. So I was able to sort of delay my decision to go all in on either one and go to Berkeley and do both. 
So that was exciting to me. Yeah. So grew up in Philly, went to school in Boston, interned at this little studio called Blue Jay outside of Boston, mm-hmm. which I kind of considered kind of like grad school. And it was like real life, you know, what it's like your first internship at a studio. Learned a lot there, a lot of different things than school. Then I was faced with, I wanted to move to like one of the biggest music making cities in the country. So I was open to anywhere. I'd never been to Nashville, but been to New York a lot. A bunch of my friends at the time were going to LA and I didn't really make a conscious decision to go to LA as much as I knew that there were a lot of bands in LA, a lot of big tracking rooms, room for drums and guitars and less of like mix rooms with a vocal booth, but like a lot of big spaces for bands of five, six people that were playing Mm -hmm. guitars and drums at the same time. Of course, that happens everywhere. That happens in New York and Nashville and every major city, but LA was uh, one of the biggest and I had some friends going and just it seemed like the price of living in LA was more comfortable than New York. I still uh, would like to try Nashville sometime. I don't have anything against Nashville. Just it was just convenient and easy to go to LA. And I'd been there once. I went to AES one time and I thought, you know, who doesn't like the weather? I was going to say, who doesn't like LA weather? I mean, yeah, it's hard to argue with it. But all I knew is I wanted to be in the biggest rooms with the most accomplished people and learning from those producers and engineers and, you know, working on big records. That was really my only motivation to go to New York, Nashville or LA. Let's step back a bit. Let's go back in, in the early days before we dive too much into once you got to LA. When you were playing an instrument, when you were at Berkeley and you discovered, you know, the whole recording thing, were you torn at all about the fact that you had discovered this new thing that you loved and started to become passionate about it as far as torn from, oh, I've I've been playing instruments and I do this, but now I have this new thing. And I always talk about this with people because I went through it. Because it was a bit of an identity crisis. It was like, well, wait a minute. You know, for me, it was always, right, right. well, I've always played drums, but, oh, but I love this recording thing so much more. Right. Did you go through that? You know, I didn't. I looked at it as a relief because I kind of felt like I was a jazz musician from like the 50s or the 60s or the 40s. And I didn't see myself going down like the smooth jazz road and all that stuff. And I didn't want to really play country clubs and art galleries and restaurants and be wallpaper, you know? Mm. I looked at production, engineering, and mixing as also as a way to work on more genres because I've always loved all kinds of things, um, not just jazz. So mixing, I was able to just mess up drums and mangle basses and do rides on guitars. And I'm not playing those things, but it feels like I'm musically involved editing, tuning, all that stuff. I got my hands on these genres that weren't my instruments. So I felt it was liberating might be the wrong word, but it expanded everything and allowed me to be in more genres than the saxophone was. I mean, I I was playing a little bit of not jazz stuff on saxophone, but there are limits to the sound. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a monophonic thing and it has a vibe and I kind of like when people push it. I was doing like stuff like fishbone and Chili Peppers, and I loved Morphine. Morphine, great band. So it's not like I was a jazz purist, but not making my living playing allowed me to work with a lot of genres that I love. So I I wasn't torn about it. Okay, but it's kind of strange. I mean, there you are at Berkeley playing sax, and you have these concerns about being wallpaper music. So finding recording must have just been like, aha, I have an exit strategy. It was tough. I mean, gigging 
it was snowing and instruments are heavy. And I was learning from these teachers that they made a fine living, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was comfortable. Yeah. So it was just sort of, I found it something I could do that just kept my musical brain going. I thought it was very exciting. Tell me about your internship. Blue Jay was a studio that one of the teachers at Berkeley worked at. The studio had two engineers and mixers that that weren't on staff. They were just sort of like regular freelancers. So Mm. my friend was named Mark Wessel and he was one of my teachers and just kind of got around school that that was a good place to work. And Mark was there sometimes. There was this other engineer there sometimes. So it was a really well-respected studio in the area. And it's a little far out. Of course, I'm not getting paid, but I also had to rent a car. So I was losing money by going. But there's, like I said, it was just, the experience is just priceless. I mean, just to understand session dynamics and who's in charge and kind of the flow of energy. And uh, great clients came through. Hmm. Tom Dowd was there a couple of times. Oh my God. Yeah. It was crazy. I'll never forget. It was like snowing one night. It was like almost Christmas and there was a deer in the backyard and sitting there hanging with Tom Dowd. And he was the most kind, generous. His demeanor was just very approachable. And I really enjoyed hanging out with him. And at at the time I knew who he was and I understood his uh, impact on musical history. But that's another thing that when you're a young person, you just have to understand how to keep the respect level there and just kind of figure out how to navigate it and not be drooling all over him. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, he was a, he's a legend. Michael Brower came through one time. I remember he had all these refrigerated double-sided racks of gear. Oh yeah. Like the studio had all kinds of stuff, but he UPS or FedEx his own stuff. And he brought Ryan Hewitt with him who got him set up. And then one of the house guys assisted him after Ryan left, but met Ryan there. And I still kind of email with Michael to this day. Yeah. I mean, all, the, all these relationships add up. They really do. Yeah. How long did you do that internship? How long did that last? And did you eventually work at the studio? No, I believe I interned there for about a year, maybe a year and a half towards the end of my education. And I left when I graduated because I thought it was time to, to go to LA or somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. You graduated, you stopped working there, and then you immediately just moved to LA? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The guys at um, school, Rob Jasko used to work at AM, Bill Sheneman. He was more of a New York person, I think, coming up. But uh, there was another guy named Ed Goudreau who had ties in LA from the AM days. I think I wouldn't say that because I went to Berkeley or because I knew those guys, I got the job at AM, but. I think at least they like allowed me to come in and talk to them and get an interview, mm-hmm. you know, speak for myself. I landed at A&M Studios, which is now Henson. Mm-hmm. It's Sunset and La Brea, the old Chaplin lot. It's now Henson, but they kept the recording studios much as it were. There was a brief period where Universal owned it. It went from A&M to Universal and then Henson, but that's where I was from 98 to 02. When you got to LA, was was there any culture shock for you? I mean, you'd come from... In a good way. And you were an East Coast person. Did, yeah. Did that play any part of your kind of like, wow, this place? I think I was always kind of a chill East Coaster, not like the more teethy kind of aggressive in your face East Coast people. I think I felt perfectly fine Yeah. with the culture aspect of it. I didn't really do much culture. I mean, I was doing sometimes 100 hour weeks or 120 hour weeks, at least 60 hour weeks, you know? Yeah. So I was just 
either sleeping or at the studio. I didn't really do much of anything <laughs> besides that for a long time. But it was, it's just timing, you know? I mean, my wife grew up in Cherry Hill. She went to Harvard when I was at Berkeley and we just met later. And I'm thankful because certain parts of your life, your, your head is in the game. You know, it's, it's just, you're not ready to do certain things. You're just focused. So. so your first studio experience that started in 98, tell me about the takeaways from that. Well, every time you level up, you're always going from like the big fish to the little fish feeling. Like when you leave high school, go to college, leave college, go to working world. And it definitely felt like that coming to LA. Everything was sort of exaggerated. Like Blue Jay had one C12 and AM had six or something. You know, like there was just so many microphones that I've only read and dreamed about. 251s, 47s, 67s, 269s. I was like, oh, what's the church mic? And I, all these microphones that there's just a lot to figure out and all the upward gear. But the biggest impact for me was just the professionalism in the room was just unreal. The way everything worked, sounded, and the players. I mean, my earliest memory of LA is a No Doubt string session. Matthew Wilder was producing, I think it was like after Tragic Kingdom, but there was a string date and it was probably like 40, 50 string players. My job was like the third assistant. I was like the assistant's assistant and basically there to like switch out headphones if they weren't working or cables or whatever. But I'll just never forget crawling around on the floor that string date and hearing 40 or 50 people sight reading music, playing fretless instruments. They were all in tune. And the room was just singing, you know, like when the, the, that sound pressure just excites the, a good space. And mm -hmm. I just got goosebumps thinking about it. And I did back then too, you know, that to me was just that next level that I was hoping I would find in LA. You talk about the professionalism in the room. Can you talk about the other aspects of, of the professionalism in the room? Like how people acted, how people interacted. Tell me more about that, if you could. Well, I guess it seemed complimentary in terms of like, no one person was really like a rock star besides the artist who was, that's like their job to be a rock star. I mean, that's probably the wrong word. But I guess my point is that the egos were all sort of working together to create something good. And I think the artists hire producers because they feel comfortable and producers hire engineers because they get good sounds, communicate well, have a compatible language sets. And then those engineers and producers hire studios that they like, how it works and how it sounds and just the vibe of the staff. Engineers request certain assistance because they feel comfortable. It's just sort of like, have you ever been around like some people you're stumbling on your words and other people just things just like come out naturally and you just feel like you're communicating your properly. It's just, I think everyone in the uh, creative world is always looking to surround themselves with those people that make them their best. Mm -hmm. And it's something about how people act and behave and what they say and the timing of it all. But it's just a fragile scene. I mean, just to be exposed and make art is, is a really weird thing. And it's, you don't need any roadblocks or landmines, you know? You just need to set yourself up for success with the best environment that you can. As far as that time period of you being there, did you find it difficult to survive financially? Were you being paid enough? Did you have to do other gigs to make ends meet? Uh-uh. I was okay. It was minimum wage. I think it was, I want to say $9 or $12 an hour or something. Okay. I forget what it was. What did we say year, what year this was? Was this in nine? This was 98. Okay. I was splitting a one-bedroom apartment that was 650 bucks, so it was fine. I didn't really pay for a lot of gas. Back then, there were a lot of food budgets. Didn't really have to pay for a lot of food. I remember I had like my own health insurance. That was a bill, and I had 
car insurance, but I didn't have a lot of expenses. My overhead was super low. As I said, I worked a lot. I mean, I could work as a runner. It was like sometimes 10 or 12 hour days sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a hundred bucks a day or something like that. Sometimes it was five, six day weeks. So the ratio of in, in expenses to out expenses was fine because I just wasn't spending a lot. Yeah. That's, that's definitely the trick, isn't it? Just keep that overhead low and just keep that inflow greater than the outflow. Yeah. It's just always got to scale when you get in trouble is when you sort of, one goes faster than the other. (laughs) Yeah. So moving up the engineering ladder, we'll call it. How did that work out for you? I mean, when I was there, I was just so inspired. I mean, every day it was Joe Ciccarelli or Joe Barisi or Andrew Sheps or Brendan O'Brien or Trevor Horn or Roy Thomas Baker. I mean, all these people were... Oh my gosh. That list alone is amazing. I mean, I learned a lot from them, but one thing I'll I'll try to stress is that I've always done well by um, kind of sensing when I was just about to burn out on something and then not go past that mark because it's such a social business that we do. And it's always served me very well to stop before I crested over this peak, right? Like, After four years of assisting, I felt myself inside starting to feel like kind of crusty and resentful, but I didn't want that to go from the inside to the outside because what we do is we have friends and we work together and no one wants to be around bad vibe guy. So I felt that coming and before it manifested itself in the real world, I decided that I had to tell the studio manager that I thought it was time to move on. I'd been on some projects where like a, a band would start tracking it. AM or Henson, and then move on to do overdubs somewhere a little bit less expensive. So on a project or two, I just went, went with that band on my days off unpaid just because I loved the people and the music and kind of got a sense for what it was like to be traveling around to different studios instead of being house at, at one place. But yeah, just when I felt the time was right before I got a bad attitude, I, I just told the studio manager I had to, to move on. And I just got super fortunate. I Got a call from my friend who was a personal assistant of a composer and that composer needed someone for two weeks to fill in and I did and it went great. Michael Andrews is a really talented composer from Donnie Darko, Orange County, Freaks and Geeks, Gary Jules. He had just finished a Metric record. I love this band called Metric. He's a very creative person that plays a lot of instruments. I loved the job. It was following him around and keeping up with him. He's um, like a creative sort of multi-instrumentalist person and he just layers and layers and layers. And sometimes some of the layers need to be worked, you know, massaged a little bit, but he doesn't care in the moment. He's just thinking about this pyramid of sound and incredibly musical person. And uh, I loved it. We did uh, our first project together was Anara George solo record. She had a band called Bird and the Bee with Greg Kirsten after that, but she has this beautiful album called All Rise. That that was the first thing I did with Michael. And then he did a lot of film and TV and I had never done that before. So I learned about how to have video in sessions and how to use time code and Pro Tools and spotting and all that. At the time, we were just mixing stereo and then our stereo stems would go to a new dub stage and there'd be film mixers spreading out our score stems. So we were bouncing back and forth between visual use and music projects. That was another four-year run. So I was about an assistant for about four years and now with Michael for about four years. I was going to say, it's just interesting, like your openness to just kind of, oh, okay, this door is open. I'm going to walk in here and I'm going to hang out with this guy for four years and work and, yeah. and learn as much as I can. 
it was just something that felt right to both of us. I think if either one of us, if it wasn't working, then I think it just naturally things just dissolve. And it's not anyone's fault if it's not a good fit. Mm-hmm. I just think, you know, we just both decided it was fun. And why would you want to stop having fun? When you walk into a gig like that, I mean, you're trying to balance in your head, like, okay, these are my expenses. How do I communicate? This is what I need to make. This is how many hours I should be doing. Were you exclusively working with him or were you doing other projects? He's He was the one that said, you know, he had a, a day rate in mind and seemed fine to me. It was twice what I was making as an assistant. So oh, that's cool. That's a good pay raise. Yeah. It was a lot. I mean, I was actually engineering and actually mixing. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a deserved pay bump, but it was really steady work. He was a very busy man and I wasn't under contract to him or exclusive, but he worked so much that he has a band called Grey Boy All-Stars. Like if he went on tour with the All-Stars, I would actually like enjoy the break. Or he would also let me use his studio. I mixed this uh, first Miko record that when he was on tour and this other guy, Buddy. So yeah, if I had the energy and didn't need a vacation, he let me use his place when he was not around. So it just kind of worked out. I thought the fee would be appropriate and it turns out it was. And at this point, I still had low expenses, really. They're starting to creep up a little bit, but I think I was still living pretty modestly. Huh. I want to go back to something you said earlier. Nobody likes to be around the the bad vibe guy. Yeah. Was that something that came naturally to you to kind of keep a good vibe around everybody or... Does it take a lot to kind of hold in like some frustrations? I mean, I know personally, I'm an expressive person, so I can be diplomatic, but I can also just express this is pissing me off or this is frustrating or whatever in the right moments. So I'd like you to kind of dissect what is the bad vibe guy or bad vibe woman in, in this case? And did you see it in other people that you were working with? It always has come naturally to me to be a sort of calm presence that's somewhat reassuring. I think that's in my nature. I did see a lot of bad energy and what it looks like might be judgmental. It might have like a preference on something and then it's sort of cast out. There was one engineer in particular who comes to mind who um, just sort of always had to calibrate the Fairchild, but the singer really had a great idea and he or she really wanted to get on the mic and go. This bad vibe engineer would just be like, no, 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 we have to calibrate something or, oh, I, I, I need this certain serial number of this one certain microphone because that's what I've always, you know, it's like when you hold up the creative because of the technical, I just learned that over and over again. It's just never going to work. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, so let's carry on. You're working with this composer. You say that that went on for about four years? Yeah. We did a lot of great projects, a bunch of movies, a bunch of albums. Our last project together was Walk Hard, which is a John C. Riley movie. It's kind of a musical biopic mockumentary. It's a mm. Judd Apatow kind of. Have you seen it? I, I have not. As a musician, and you would you would appreciate it. It's like an amalgam of every rock star that's ever lived and all the problems they all go through, like from <laughs> drugs to women to excess to it started off as like a Johnny Cash and Ray mashup, mm-hmm. but then it gets into like, I don't know, all kinds of things like Elvis and Beach Boys and it's like just taking all the hilarious parts of musicians and making it into like a caricature of themselves. It's comedy. I mean, he's in rehab and he's like, I want more blankets and less blankets, you know, just like ridiculous, <laughs> Ricky, ridiculous stuff. And Oh, I'll have to check that out. That sounds great. There's a Beach Boys, Phil Spector kind of scene with like, it needs more didgeridoo and like the things that we, as a musician, you'll, you'll appreciate it. A little spinal tapish. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big budget movie and it was a lot of hours. And when it came to the end, I decided that it was like that thing I told you earlier. Like I felt that thing in my body that was saying, you're coming to a point with this where I don't want to say quit while you're ahead because it's not really quitting. Like you always keep these relationships if you do it right. Yeah. You have to part respectfully and amicably and stay in touch and water that plant. That friendship has to be maintained. But I felt like I had to do that with Michael. I just had to start saying like, I am the boss of my schedule. And at that point I had just met my wife and, you know, I want to go to Mammoth sometimes. I want to go to Yosemite. I'm an outdoorsy person. I want to know that I can go on a date with her when I want to. And when you're part of someone's team and they're getting the jobs, you come along with them as a package deal. And I was ready to see if I could be fully independent. Mm. So that's that's what happened there after four years. But after four years of assisting and four years of Michael Andrews engineering and mixing, I had met a lot of great players and they all these players have friends and it was just the community was strong. Mm-hmm. After eight years, I knew a lot of people and I felt like I was prepared. And so you, did you jump shit and go independent? Yeah. I just started mixing in our basement here. It's kind of like a walkout the first floor is at ground level, then it slopes down. The basement's at ground level in the back, and I have windows. And I didn't even have a rig. My friend, 
you know that songwriter Busby? He he passed a couple years ago. I remember Buzz gave me his, he had like an extra 888 or something. And <laughs> I kind of cobbled together like a little Pro Tools rig. And my friend Hans DeKlein, he was on your podcast right, a little while yeah. ago. I started using Hans's rig in his dining room when he wasn't working. He was just starting and I was just kind of working wherever I could until I scrapped together a few pennies and got my own system and just been growing since then. And I saw on your website, this is the solar powered situation. Yeah. I think we're in like year four, year five of a 12 year lease on our panels. So it's been about four years and we designed the size of the system to pretty much produce exactly what we typically use. It's almost exactly right. We have a little bit of extra energy that we sell back. And then we have this like solar bank account with LADWP. But yeah, a couple, couple years ago we got solar and um, I don't have any storage. I don't have any batteries. So. Well, tell me about your journey as an independent mixer. Cause I mean, you've got some great credits going Thanks. on. Tell me about getting work and how you've managed it. It started off with through a lot of the Michael Andrews crowd. We tended to do a lot of like hotel cafe, acoustic-y, singer-songwriter-y, cinematic, rise and fall, dramatic, pop music or, or singer-songwriter music, but it had dynamics to it. There was a show in, on public radio called Morning Becomes Eclectic, Nick Harcourt. We had oh, yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff going on. It just kind of fed into each other. I'd work with one band and it was just snowballed a little bit on an independent level. Once in a while, my friend Julian Raymond would call me to engineer a track, but back then it was like maybe 60% mixing, 40% tracking. And the last five or 10 years, I'd say it's like 90, 95% mixing. But as far as how the clients came to be, it was just word of mouth and just community snowball. A huge moment happened for me when I was working with a producer named Dwayne Laring, and he had an assistant named Aaron Anderson. And Aaron was an Orange County guy, and Aaron was friends with this guy named Brent Kutzel and Aaron said, oh, you got to go meet Brent. He's a good person to know. You guys would work well together. And I went to a show and met Brent and that turned into the whole One Republic, Ryan Tedder scene that lasted me a good like four or five years or so. Full of amazing projects, not just Brent's band, One Republic, but they were constantly working with other artists. And that was the more higher profile stuff that, you know, it's, it's, it's nice when your work gets heard in more headphones. I really love the independent stuff that may or may not get heard either. I've developed the ability to just enjoy the day, enjoy the process, enjoy what you're doing. It doesn't have to, it's never my job to write the song or write the lyrics or anything like that. So yeah, that whole, that whole connection was wonderful. When it comes to getting mixing gigs, I mean, do you ever actively say, I'd like to put my name in the hat to mix this? Or do people just reach out and say, Hey, can you mix this? It's usually them reaching out to me. I think in general, when I seek it out, it usually doesn't pan out. Mm. Sometimes if there's enough reinforcement, like if a band keeps hearing from trusted friends of theirs, maybe I'll do a song to see how it goes. But bands are a bit of a democracy, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a group decision and they have to make it. So unless for some reason they all have the same idea about the same person, it's going to be hard for them to come to a group decision. So yeah, it's usually best if they're the ones coming at you saying, we heard, we all heard this. We all like this. We definitely want you to, to do it. I think when people have a bunch of mixers do the same song just to see what 
the differences, it usually winds up being more confusing for the client because the client will say, oh, well, I really like drums from this guy and the vocals from this guy and the guitars from this girl. And I like the overall loudness of this other person. And it just kind of gets to be a mess, like a confusion. It's very rarely that of a test mix shootout kind of thing. Usually, I don't think that there's like ever like a clear like, oh, this is obviously the one. I think it just gets muddled, you know? Yeah. I think the client should have a clear vision about, I just love this album that this person did. And then maybe you do a song just to confirm your suspicion. And then you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. And the communication's also great because it's hard for artists to know what your percent involvement was. Like you didn't, they don't know what it sounded like before you got to it. So you have to actually have the content that you're actually working on together. Like you can say that you like an album, but it's not until you hear a true before and after that you really know. And I also think the communication is just as much a part of it than the musical instincts, how you treat artists, how you listen to them, how you turn their ideas into reality or not. You're only going to find that out through working together. How did the U2 project come to you? Brent Kutzel from One Republic and Ryan Tedder were producing half of a U2 album and Jackknife Lee was doing the other half. I don't know Jackknife at all, but Brent often does secondary versions of his productions that are acoustic guitar based or piano based or very often string based. So he used to call me a lot for the alternate version that like if they sent the main band one to Spike Stent or Tom Elmhurst or Serban or something, a lot of times I would do the alternate version. So that's what happened with U2. And I think the band really liked it because they play that arrangement live, or at least they did when I saw them a couple weeks later. The presentation of it was more like the alternate version than the regular version, whatever that means, you know? Right. But that's how the U2 project came apart was I'd been working with Brent for a while and he was working on that album. It seems like you do a fair amount of communication with musicians and that that's obviously important if you're going to be mixing records for people. Yeah. I mean, is that accurate? Do you spend a fair amount of time networking with musicians? Networking, yeah. But the communication side of it is just, it's the difference between success and not. I think that you can do a lot of things in mixing and the goal is to figure out what they're looking for and elevate it because you were involved, take their vision and make it even better than they imagined. I've never been the type of mixer that just has like, I don't, I don't really listen to them and just, I do my thing because it's more marketable. You can sell it or whatever. I'm very uh, collaborative with them and I try to take their ideas and run with it. And I liken it to if they're sort of excited about something, but a little bit, what's that word? Intrepidation, the kind of feeling of like, I think I want to do this, but I'm not quite sure. It's just good to have a team that says like, no, 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 you're, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Like, just like push them into the pool and, you know <laughs> right. what I mean? And then when you do it, it feels so good, but you were like unsure. But if you have a group of people that support you and your ideas, it's just the best feeling ever. You know, I mean, you finally get it, but you also have to be like, well, we tried that it didn't, or, you know, it didn't work out, but that's okay. No one got hurt in the process, you know? Right. You mainly mix out of your home. Mm -hmm. And these days, especially, you know, post pandemic and state of the world of where we're at here in 2022, people generally, it seems, don't 
travel around to listen to stuff. Obviously, we've got the technology to send mixes around, you know, and have for some time. But right, do you ever run into any situations where having a home studio is a problem and that it's better to go to the artist or, or does that not even come up? I'd say it doesn't come up. I have a separate bathroom and a separate entrance and I don't have to mingle the two lives. I think there is a perception issue when you have a commercial space that's nicely outfitted. I think that does have some positives for sure, but it's kind of with certain people more than others. And in the indie space, I think people are mostly concerned with how does it sound? How's it feel? And what's it cost? Anytime you have add overhead to the situation, someone has to pay for it, you know? Yeah. But, uh, I'd work somewhere else if I felt like I wasn't getting good results. And I can't imagine not being around to do a quick print, a quick fix, a quick upload, a quick whatever. Someone needs something. It happens all the time. And being responsive, I think, is a big plus. Yeah. Of course, drawing your own personal boundaries. You do have to have a sense of self, but it helps a lot to have proximity when needs come up. How do you handle the pricing of a mix for people? Do you just like have like, this is my rate and that's the end of the story? Or do you flex? How do you have those, those conversations and negotiations, you know, pricing on mixing? That's a good question and something I'd love to hear what other people do too. <laughs> I listen, to, <laughs> listen to more of your podcasts about that. It's hard to know, right? Because we're all in our own bubble and we do it our way. All right. I was thinking about this, about this conversation before we started and you know, my rates have gone up a little bit, but they've gone up slower than inflation for sure. And I think a lot of people feel that not just in music, but I think in general, that's probably true for a lot of different fields. How I handle pricing is it's sort of when they come to me, it's a matter of are the files ready or not? Can I download them now or not? Because sometimes it might be six months or a year before I download them. So but what's important is when I get their files, how busy am I? And then how fast do they need it back? Because that's to me, all that really matters to me is I'm not going to do not as quality of a job on the lower budget stuff. And I'm not going to put more effort and care into the higher budget stuff. That's not my style. Maybe I'll include stems if they're paying more and maybe I'll charge them a la carte for stems if they're paying less. But in terms of the creative care and love that you put into something, mm -hmm. I stress to everyone that that's always the same. I just keep going until it feels right to me and that's mix one. And then we just keep going until it feels right to them. It's usually mix two, three, four, but it could be mix five, six, seven, eight. I don't, doesn't really matter. So what they wind up paying doesn't really affect that side of it. I'd, what I just tell them, if I'm really busy, I might throw a higher number and then say, I'd love to work with you if you can wait. If they need it done really fast, it might even be a higher number. I just approach it as like a rush fee, yeah. essentially, or a turnaround speed fee. <laughs> but yeah, it, it does depend how busy I am. I'm much more likely to take a lower paying project. If they say they only have X amount of dollars, I'm much more willing to say yes if I'm not slammed. But I used to be booked for a couple months in advance and now I'm just booked for a couple weeks in advance. That turns out to be a lot more compatible. I think as a mixer, people mm -hmm. are 
expecting a turnaround of a, f- a couple of weeks. If it's a couple of months, they'll just say like, we love you, but we need it faster than that. We'll see you on the next one. Right. How do you handle disappointment in the world of audio? Because you put your hard work into a project and sometimes it gets rejected. Or some people will say, well, we had, we had this other guy do it too, and we kind of like his better. Or Yeah. How do you deal with those, those moments? That's a great question, Matt. I think a lot about what Manny Merrickwin once told me, and he's like, some people hire servants sometimes instead of me, and it's not really a problem. And I, I've really adopted that philosophy because if someone winds up not liking what you've done, it doesn't hurt me because I, I still love it and I want them to love it. And if they don't love it, whatever they, needs to happen for them to be happy with their, their project. Sometimes you think it's a good fit and it just isn't. And I've learned to not really take that personally. It can be difficult when I always have their ref mix on my print track and I'm always in, going in and out of input. To Mm -hmm. compare what I've done or how far I've taken it or my contribution. It is sort of disheartening when you feel like you really upped it and then they don't agree. But you have to regroup and you have to figure out, get inside their head. And it's like empathy. It's just like you have to put yourself in their shoes and try to get the best thing for them. And there's probably a couple of different ways you can mix it that you'd be happy with and you have to pivot and get down their lane. Hmm. But uh, yeah, there there are certainly times when it doesn't work out and it's a bummer sometimes, but all we want is for everyone to walk away happy. And if that's not with me, then that's okay. Yeah. Maybe they'll have another song or another project that it'll work out, or maybe we just don't see things the same way. That's art. There's so many different ways to do it. And it's not surprising that you don't see art the same way as some people. So it's all, it's all cool with me. I won't go down a rabbit hole of gear talk with you, but I will ask, do you have your setup to a point where quick fixes and recall is easy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been using Summing Mixer for a long time. So I just recall the stereo bus compressor, stereo bus EQ, which are usually pretty similar. But I've been doing in-the-box mixing as well. I'm trying to ascertain if if that sounds better. I think it's possible that it sounds similar or the same. I remember when I first got my system, I just did a mix out of outs one and two. And then I did that sequential output spin where like, it's just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So the whole mix was just using 32 outs instead of two. And I was like, oh, that sounds better. I'm using more outputs. That sounds a little wider. Let's go with that. And then I never thought about it ever again. Right. And then lately with more and more stems, becoming a normal deliverable and offline bounce would speed up that process. I usually have like 25 passes to print on a song between the main, the TV, the instrumental, the acapellas, then like drums only, bass only, synths only, guitars only, acoustics only, electrics only, lead only, strings only, horns only, whatever. It's like usually about 25 passes and um, analog, it takes like an hour and a half. So I thought in the box might be good. I could do it a third of that time, maybe. Bounce Factory. Have you used a Shep's Bounce Factory? I was factory? just going to say, if, if there's one thing I can impart on you, it's get Andrew's Bounce Factory because it just, oh my God, it saved me so much time. Yeah, it's beautiful. I Right now I'm just doing it on a one song by song basis, but if I was in the box, I could do a whole record or an album. But yeah, I just want it to sound good and I'm still undecided. 
I'm sure there's pluses and minuses to both approaches sonically. Yeah. Neither one bums me out or makes me happy. People have all kinds of opinions on that stuff, but I try to just react as I'm doing it and feel any limitations or not. And so far, so good. Well, we are out of time here. I want to thank you for taking time for me today. For the listener, there'll be a link in the show notes to briancookmixer.com. You can check Brian out and reach out to him if you have any questions. But one thing I think I wanted to point out here, there's a quote from you that you left in the form that I sent you. And that is, I love doing non-music things to help improve the music things. So before we go, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. If you've lived your life colorfully, the songs will hit you in a way that makes sense to you. If you've loved and lost, if you've been to the valley or whatever, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like you got to go through things for the lyrics to resonate. Mm -hmm. Then that'll inspire you to find that little Casio SK-1 that's doing that suspended melody that's implying hope. Like the whole song's dark and depressing, but then the bridge has hope. And then you find that one little lead that makes the song work, you know, and you're not going to feel those things if you haven't done non-music things. That's a really good point. So get out and live life so that you can do a better job when it comes to the audio side of things. Fantastic. I love that. Well, Brian, thanks so much. You take care and thanks again. Thank you, Matt. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Brian Cook here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, be sure to get a copy of 15 Tips to Help You Survive as an Audio Professional. You can get that at workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips and check that out. Yeah. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with the magic voice of the hour. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.